Art and Tammy, thank you for leading us in that. That's wonderful. It just reminds me of how grateful I am for all of those who lead us in, in singing every week. The time that they spend, their, their giftedness, it really is a, a great blessing to us, isn't it? Uh, John chapter 20, if you haven't turned there already, we return uh, to this chapter. We come to verse 11 this morning. It's been remarkable to me to just think about how the tone and, uh, well, uh, how quickly the tone of our thinking has shifted now that we have come into this chapter from chapter 19. Uh, We have seen Mary Magdalene come to the tomb We've seen her go and tell the disciples, Peter and John, we've seen them come and investigate. Uh, They have not seen the risen Lord, but they have seen enough to know that God is at work, and they've gone to their homes marveling at what has happened. Uh, This morning, then, John brings our attention back to the person of Mary Magdalene. Uh, And after the marvels that we just heard about from uh, regarding John, Uh, And Peter, last week, in a way, it really makes us feel sorry for her. Uh, Peter and John, now, uh, they're the ones she reported to initially in verse 2. They are now done panicking. They are in wonder. Uh, And they've returned to their homes in this way. But in the meantime, what we find this morning is that in the meantime, Mary has wandered back to the tomb in the same state of despair and grief that we found her in before. She still thinks someone has stolen the body of the one that she loves. We won't be able to feel too sorry for her, though, not for long, because while her fear and grief on this morning last longer than Peter's and John's, she is more quickly given the experience that's going to sustain their joy for the rest of their lives. This morning, she is not just given the hope of God's ongoing work, she will encounter the risen Christ himself face to face. And seeing her go through this from beginning to end, it really gives us a great deal to think about. Because by watching this moment in Mary's life, we're watching her go through a process that none of us is being kept from. Mary is right in the midst of suffering and confusion and fear. Uh, none of it has escaped God's sight. None of, it, none of the details have escaped his plan. We know that. And in fact, in a, in a very obvious way, her suffering in this particular instant uh, has come to her, hasn't it, as a direct result of the accomplishing of God's wonderful plan. She is in a panic about the missing body because of what God has done in raising his son. But for her, as we come to verse 11, these events have produced suffering. And one of the things we need to notice is that she's suffering because she could not yet see what God was doing. Many of us hear those words uh, and relate to them immediately. In fact, I dare say that all of us, as we think about the events in our lives at this very moment, all of us relate to that reality. We all live in a time, not just when suffering is happening for us in many ways, but also when we have a limited understanding of what it is God is doing in and through these circumstances. 
That's a part of the suffering. It's not just that we're enduring it right now, but that in so many ways we, we don't know why right now. So it's good to see what we're getting to see this morning because we're getting a sight of both what it is like to live amid present seasons of suffering and confusion and fear, but also we get a sight this morning of the future of all of those experiences. When God's promises will wind up proving to have been true the whole time, even in the ways that we did not yet see or understand. This is what we're getting a picture of this morning as we look back again to Mary Magdalene. With that in mind, let's hear together John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me once again for the reading of God's Word. John continues in this way, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if, <clears throat> sir, if you have, take, if, have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There's a very nice and simple arrangement to what we find here that we will follow. We find two questions asked of Mary and two commands given to her. And this will take us through all of these verses. Uh, Two questions that she is asked. The first of them is actually a single, twice-repeated question. You see the question that she's asked twice. Mary at the tomb is really a a full-orbed picture of complete confusion. (laughs) Uh, As she gets there, she doesn't understand what has happened. As she encounters the two angels in verse 12, she doesn't seem to understand who they are. As she encounters the Lord himself in verse 14, she doesn't understand who he is. She is just confusion all the way around. But there's something else that she doesn't understand. And the first question, the one that she gets twice brings that confusion to the forefront. It's the question asked by the angels in verse 13, and then asked again by the Lord himself in verse 15. Both of them ask her, why are you weeping? To ask that to someone in her state 
who has gone through what she's gone through, does it seem to you to be an insensitive question for them to ask? I would venture to say that by our current standards of sensitivity, our near obsessive standards, it probably is an insensitive question. I dare say that they did not share the same concerns that we have today, uh, in, in part because of what they're doing here, the fact that they ask her this. We see an effort being made on their part to actually help this woman through the asking of this question by making a point to her. Would you agree that the angels and Jesus all understand why she is weeping? They know the answer to the question. The point of the question is to call those reasons themselves into question. Why are you weeping? Implies that she may be holding to some faulty assumptions that are driving her to weep when there actually is no reason to be weeping. And so they ask her this. They begin to put this question into her mind. And to that question is added a second one. And I'm going to argue this morning that it's, it's important and helpful for us to see how these two questions go together, the, the single purpose that they serve. After the angels ask her why she's weeping, she relates her belief in verse 13 that they, someone, has taken away her Lord. And Jesus himself asks her uh, why she is weeping. And then he asks her in verse 15, right on the heels of that, whom are you seeking? Notice the kinds of things that these questions are bringing her mind to, if she will stop and think of them. It was interesting to me to, to consider, this is now the fourth time in John that Jesus has asked that exact question. He, he asked that question, whom are you seeking, of the two disciples that John the of John the Baptist that had come to him in chapter 1. He twice asked that question of the mob that approached him in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18. And he asks it now of Mary, but he asks it in this particular context. And, and let's, let's pose the same question to it that we asked of the first question. Is it cruel of him to ask her this question? I mean, he knows the answer. He knows whom she is seeking. Is he teasing her? Or is there a point within this question that he has for her? It's paired with the first one that is challenging her need to weep, that's questioning her assumptions. It's not difficult to imagine that there is something more meaningful going on here. As we hear him ask her to consider this question, Mary, who is it that you are seeking? Are you not seeking the one who said of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Are you not seeking the one who said, Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down so that I may take it up again. Mary, think. Who is it that you are seeking? Incidentally, it's a good moment for us as well as we hear him ask her these questions to pose them to ourselves. What about us? Who is it that we say we are following? It's an interesting thing in this life to commit to following this one that we walk after. Because in this life, as we follow him, what is the end of following him in this life? It's not as if as Christians 
We're following him toward a day in this life of storming a castle. We're following him in this life down a path that will lead us to the end of our days. It will lead us to, perhaps, if the Lord gives it to us, old age. It will lead us right into death itself. What sense does it make to follow this man who gives us, he describes it in Revelation 2.10, as our end goal, be faithful unto death. This is what he tells us to do. Well, it makes sense because of who it is that we are following. We know that we are following the one who is life. We're following the one who himself has died and has conquered death. And so I'm following him very expectantly planning to follow him right into death. As, as long as the Lord gives me, I'm, I'm planning to follow him into death and to then be preserved through death and to continue a life without end of following him beyond death. And understanding who it is that we're following will do everything for us in terms of how we will then walk as we pursue him. The answer to the question, who are you seeking? will have everything to do with the way that we walk in this life. Mary, in her tears that morning, in the desperation that she is exhibiting, she does reflect the love of Christ, doesn't she? But we can sense in this, and it's inherent in these questions that they're asking her, that it also reflects a deficient understanding in that moment of who this really is. Who are you seeking? So these are the two questions that she's met with. Why are you crying? And whom are you seeking? And we'll reflect a bit more here after a bit on how we benefit from what we see there in those questions. But before we do that, let's add to that what we notice that comes right after. Notice the two commands that are given to her following those questions. The commands come to her after the moment of recognition. Look again at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We see a very sudden reaction, and doubtless one that is far more emotional than John tells us of here. John is not the one that gives us the most emotional descriptions of some of these events. But we can see the intensity of this in in some of what he gives us. She immediately responds to him in the way that she is used to speaking to him. And it's full of affection. Teacher. And I think we can tell as well from the first command that we'll see that more than likely what she does is she runs to him and grabs a hold of him. Probably she falls to her feet and clings to his robes. The command that he gives her, we'll see in a second, is a particular grammatical form that means stop doing something that you're doing rather than meaning don't start doing something. So instead of something like the King James, touch me not, it's probably better to think of it something like what the New American Standard translates it as, as stop clinging to me. So we see this reaction from her that is full of love 
that is also full of a kind of desperation itself as she grabs hold of him and doesn't want to let him go in her joy. And her reaction produces two commands from Jesus that are very telling for us. The first one, I'll word as we go through it in the New American Standards way, stop clinging to me. And notice that he adds a reason for that here. He says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, this is a statement, we should admit, that has created difficulty for interpreters. Uh, and for a couple of reasons. One, the struggle with the question, well, what, what is he saying is wrong with clinging to him? Uh, in just a few verses, he's going to tell Thomas to reach out and touch his hands and his side. It's clearly not some sort of problem with touching him physically, but then what, what is the problem? There's some wrestling that, that some uh, have with that. Uh, the second is with the question of the connection there between his command and the reason he gives. What's the connection between the fact that she shouldn't do that and the fact that he has not yet ascended to the Father? Notice he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's not the clearest thing. There's some difficulty here. Several suggestions have been offered, um, and some of which I don't think make very much sense. But there is an explanation that I think makes very good sense, and, and I'm going to suggest it's the right one. It has to do with what Jesus is correcting in Mary. Could it be that she has just clung to him in a desperate, frenzied sort of way, as if... Now that she has him back, she might lose him again at any moment. Stop clinging to me. You do not have to hold on to me as if I were about to disappear from you permanently. The time has not yet come for me to ascend to the Father. Which means, this is a time, Mary, for joy, but especially, this is a time for sharing the news. It's not a time for clutching at me in panic. If that's what he means here, it matches very well with the second command that he gives her. Because he doesn't simply tell her, stop clinging to me. He says, stop clinging to me, but instead, what? Go. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That is why you should not cling to me, Mary. It's not only because you're not in danger of losing my presence, but also because you need to go and tell my brothers that I am continuing the process that I already told them about back in John 16, 28. He told them then, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is still, the plan is still right on schedule. This is what I am doing. Go share what you have learned with my brothers, he says. And that's exactly what she does. She goes and she tells them that she's seen him herself, and she also recounts these specific words to them. Uh, as we see their reunion with Christ next week, we'll be rem reminded of just how confused they were only a few days ago when he had told them. You remember when we saw this, their confusion when he said, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. They were so confused, and now they have lived through it. Well, we find further in Matthew and Mark that he has sent additional word to the disciples 
that he is going to go ahead of them to Galilee and that they are to meet him in Galilee. So that's exactly what they're going to do following this. But one, one final detail for us to consider here in the text before we stand back and look at it as a whole is the way that Jesus speaks of his God and Father at the end of verse 17. This is, so, this is really something for us to hear him speak in these terms. Notice again, he says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And in fact, can I suggest that we need to, we need to hold in our minds with that the few words right before it as well, where he says to her, go to my brothers and say to them. He's clearly not directing her to his earthly brothers, and there's no confusion there. She doesn't go to his earthly brothers. She knows what he means. She goes to his disciples. And it's certainly not the first time chronologically that Christ has spoken of them in these relational terms as his brothers. All three synoptic gospels tell of a time when he pointed to his disciples and he said, here are my brothers. So this is not the first time he's made that point. However, this is the first time in John's gospel for him to speak of them as his brothers. And it's right here together with this emphasis on their joint family relationship. He says, I am ascending to my father and your father. This is really something to notice. It is the thing he's eager for Mary to go announce to them. That this has to be significant, right? It's an, it's an announcement he is excited for them to hear. And yet he has told them repeatedly by now that he is returning to the father. So what is, the, what is the new announcement here, the new emphasis in this message? Well, just consider something. Consider that he has 21 times in John spoken of God as, quote, my father. 21 times. He has never yet spoken of God to somebody else as, quote, your father. There are five other times when Jesus speaks the words, your father, all five times, it is to his opponents. It's all in chapter 8. One of them he's referring to your father Abraham. But the other four times, he is affirming that Satan is their father as he speaks to them of your father. Now, I'm not suggesting that the disciples had Satan as their father until the resurrection. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But I do think Jesus is declaring to them the accomplishment of their adoption. My brothers, the means by which you may call God your father, it has been accomplished. I go to the one who is not just my father, he is your father. He is not just my God, he is your God. And certainly for both of those designations, as Jesus says, my father and my God, for both of them, there's a sense in which it is true of him in a way different than the way it is true of us. The reality of Christ as the God-man, the, the incarnate Son of God eternally, is significant here for us to acknowledge. Christ is the eternal Son made, uh, uh, taking on flesh. He is the only begotten Son of God. And that's not a sonship like ours. Ours is a sonship by adoption. I think both statements he makes about himself here, though, both of Father and God, 
in spite of the fact that there are unique ways that that is true of him, even in virtue of his deity. I think it's better for us to hear him in making both of these statements as most directly speaking of his human role as the head, the federal head of a people. Jesus Christ is the true son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. He is at last now the truly obedient covenant head. And as such, he stands before his God, representing his people, and gives perfect worship and complete obedience. All these things are true to say, in particular, of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the incarnate one. And those are things that are said uniquely of him in that capacity, and it's important that we understand the ways in which Christ is different from us. But I agree with those who see in this statement that he makes here more of a description of what they are sharing in together than in what distinguishes them from him. D.A. Carson writes, for example, the emphasis here is on the shared privileges. As he says, I go to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Our Lord is announcing and celebrating with them what has been done for us. And he wants his disciples to know. He loves them, and he's eager for them to hear these things. Isn't that wonderful to see and hear in the Lord Jesus Christ? This eagerness that this news would be heard by those for whom he has accomplished this. It's really profound to hear the excitement of our Lord regarding what he has accomplished on our behalf. And to hear his desire that his excitement would be our excitement. And that leads us then, and it, in fact, it helps us in thinking about that, to stand back and see all of verses 11 to 18 through that lens. I'm thinking in particular of the two actions of Mary here, the weeping and what that says to us, what we can understand and take from this interaction about her weeping and the clinging, weeping and clinging. What have we seen about the divine mission that was planned in eternity past and brought to fruition at the cross. With what we've seen about that, what is true about our weeping that's pointed out here? Let's think about that first. Mary's weeping became a microcosm of every tear of every broken sinner who comes to Christ alone for rescue. We see in her and in these tears, exactly what is in store for all of us who have come to Christ for life. Because her tears, in a moment, are turned into joy. And in so doing, she becomes something of an embodiment of David's praises in Psalm chapter 30. Would you turn for a moment to Psalm 30? Let me read the first five verses to us. David writes this, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You, rest, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. 
for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. This is a Davidic psalm. It's a picture, isn't it easy to see, that comes to fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And what we find in Mary is that because Jesus has lived the deliverance of this psalm, because his weeping has been replaced with joy, so can Mary Magdalene's. And so can yours. And so will all of yours. And we who have run to Christ for life, we need to dwell on this and see it. We need to see Christ, our head. Christ, our representative, there in verse 5. And we need to be able to identify, because he knows verse 5 personally. These things are your guarantee. He knew the Father's anger for a moment. And now he knows the Father's favor for a lifetime. The reason that you and I The reason that we take our real and present sufferings and heartaches before our Father in prayer and confess to Him, I know, Father, that in my suffering, I know that I will outlast these trials because of the work of Christ. So I do not just pray for deliverance. I know that that is mine inevitably. You will inevitably rescue me from all my suffering. And tears. But because of these things, according to God's perfect timing, I don't just pray for deliverance. I can also pray, God, give me the grace to walk faithfully before you as you lead me through this suffering. Because I know that you will never leave me or forsake me. This is true because Jesus knew Psalm 30 verse 5 personally. Our head, our representative, enjoys the favor of his Father forever. And thus, we who are in Christ will never be left or forsaken. And incidentally, this is exactly the place as well then, that we can transition and consider not just Mary's weeping and what it says to us, but also to consider her act of clinging. There's so much similarity here. She need not cling to him as if she were in danger of losing him again. In fact, it has never been less true that she need fear the loss of him. She has some time with him again now, bodily, that's true enough. Acts 1 is going to tell us that he will spend 40 days on earth after the resurrection, encouraging and teaching them. So he's not going to leave her bodily that day. There's time there. But here's what we find. Even when that period comes to an end, even at his ascension into heaven, you see the disciples standing marveling at what they've just seen. But you don't hear anything about his disciples then entering a lengthy period of mourning for him, for his departure. You hear nothing of that. They are not clinging to him bodily as he goes. And I can't help but think that that is because of the results of his teaching them. And in fact, what he had already taught them before the cross, that I'm sure he brings back to their mind and explains and enlightens them in. 
We've seen this before, though. Go back with me to John 14. Remember the words that he spoke to them. John 14, I'll read verses 16 to 23. Remember what he said would be true in the sending of the Holy Spirit. He said to them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that, listen to this, that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Christ has now not just won a victory that is unrelated to our being with him. The very victory he has won is a victory that locks us forever into union with him. Our very identity is now entirely wrapped up in the reality of our being found in him. So that by his victory, that he is sending them word of here, marvelous statements can be made. Statements, I think, that we would be blessed to spend more time thinking about than maybe we do. Statements like, we find in the book of Romans, the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul answers there, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's not a statement, is it, of God's distant well wishes that are ours forever? No, this is not simply a statement of, of the presence of his love as if there's something to be separated between his love and himself. God is love. To be unseparable from his love is to be unseparable from him. He is promising us his presence forever. Or remember the words of our Lord that in Matthew's gospel, when he said to them, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What he's promising them there in John is the promise that by virtue of the presence of the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Godhead are ours. They are with us. Jesus Christ is near to us. Never to be separated from us again. There is no need for panic clinging. Because of what he's accomplished, he is ours forever. And we are his forever. How has the focus of our study changed? I mentioned that at the beginning, this sort of a uh, tone change now that we've entered chapter 20 and the tomb is empty. We're getting it put to us, what Mary Magdalene has only begun now to be faced with. 
The fact that the greatest questions of man's existence have now found an answer. The, the deepest problems that man ever had have now found their solution. There is simply no way possible to overstate this. With the empty tomb and the risen Lord, a ransom for sin has been made and accepted. And I would ask you to hear this personally. You who continue to live in this life, I'm I'm speaking directly to you who know the freedom and forgiveness that is yours only in the washed the washing of the blood of Christ. Think about this. The defining problem of your existence is the fact that as one who has sinned against God, you have been set at enmity against God by that sin. And for that, you deserve nothing less than his full and perfect justice and wrath. My friend, what problem at work compares to that problem? What physical malady compares to that problem? In fact, every other problem we ever face in this life is merely a symptom of that one, that we are a cursed people of a fallen race. That's the source of every instance of suffering in this world, isn't it? And Mary has just exemplified for us the reality that the work is now finished to bring those who are united to Christ by faith into unending fellowship with him. We need not cling in fear as if something or someone could take him from us. Nothing will ever separate him from us again. He has made his home with us, as he described it to his disciples. And in the Bible, those two things go together. Dwelling with God, being brought into his presence, that is the removal of tears. Consider what we hear in Revelation 21 Verses 3 and 4, you've heard this already this morning. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What's the result of that dwelling, that presence? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And John writes that in the way that most all of the book of Revelation is written, which is to say he writes those words with an eye on the Old Testament, seeing the fulfillment of God's plan that he has always been pointing us toward. And so we're not surprised to find that same kind of thing in the Old Testament. In fact, and this will be the last place I have you turn, but this is long enough. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 25. I'll begin at verse 6 and read verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. 
He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see the way that his drawing near to them, fellowshipping with them, pictured in this feast together. This is the cause for the removal of these tears that he promises us and that we see in part there with Mary on that morning. And you see the way that these two things belong together. And my friends, we sit here this morning amid this already and not yet time of the work of Christ being applied to mankind. There is an already and a not yet, isn't there? As we sit here today, tears are being wiped away and weeping is being turned into joy. Think of some particular kinds of tears. Think of the tears that come from the controlling terror over the guilt that our sin deserves. Think of the tears that come as we are faced with the reality of who we are and what we have done when we stand before the Holy One and weep. We as Christians in this place need to understand those tears that were utterly reasonable and proper before the Lord drew you to himself and covered you in his son's righteousness. Those tears that were reasonable then, now in the salvation bought you by Jesus Christ, those tears are met in you with Jesus' question in, the, in this passage. Why are you weeping? Those are tears that are now wiped away. It is true, we must be careful never to feel callous or casual about the sin that remains in us. It does continue to break our hearts, doesn't it? But at the very same time, we must be careful as Christians to be able to look past Satan's deceptions and to affirm that it is an act of faith when we entrust ourselves to the finished work of Christ and we refuse to live from a sense of guilt. There is a way to do that, to live in a sense of guilt that simply boils down to me thinking too much about me and not nearly enough about him. No, see, those tears are wiped away now already. We know very well that even as there are those already wiped away tears, there are also very, very proper, not yet wiped away tears, aren't there? This work of Christ that we're hearing him proclaim here is fully accomplished. It is not yet fully applied, which is why Christians are fundamentally described in Scripture as a waiting people. You heard it there in Isaiah 25. What did we say? All the way through our history until the time when Christ came and walked the earth, we said, we've been waiting for you. What will we say one day when he returns and all tears are wiped away? We will say, We've been waiting. (laughs) 
We are awaiting people. My friend, are you waiting quite self-consciously? How are you waiting? Are you waiting like a Christian waits? Are you waiting full of hope and expectation? You know what I mean. There's two very different experiences. Waiting for something that I am not at all sure is going to happen. Excited, hopeful, but I'm not at all sure. That's a waiting that has some additional temptation and some uh, stomach acid and some anxiety. It's another thing to wait for something that I am very excited about, but that I also know for sure is coming. It's not here yet. I wait for it, but it's coming. When I'm waiting for something that I am very excited about and that I know is coming, that really affects my mood, doesn't it? Surely I'm not the only one in here. Surely that is a universal human experience. That no matter what I'm dealing with in that day, if there is that kind of thing on my mind and I know it's coming, I can't help but be encouraged in the way I then live that day. It's why we are persuaded again and again in Scripture to be a people that are fighting for joy, always joy. It's not because we're being called to be naive. It's not because, and it certainly shouldn't be, an attempt to fake something hypocritically. It's not about that at all. It's about this. It's about what we're talking about. It's about walking through life settled in my thinking that my best days are all ahead of me. Days of such contentment and satisfaction, such fulfillment of every purpose I've been made for that I can't even imagine them yet. He's told me I can't imagine them yet, but he's told me that they're coming. And so I can look forward to them. I can hope in all confidence. And my friends, when I do that, I am living like a Christian. May God give us grace today and this week and going on to be a people that live like Christians. Heavenly Father, we come before you now with thankful hearts. There's no doubt quite a spectrum in terms of the ways that we all arrived at this place this morning, but we knew that we were coming here to worship a God who is good and kind, a God who gathers us together that he might encourage and bless and lift us up. And Lord, I pray that you have so done in all of our lives through what we have seen here, that we are leaving in a different frame of mind perhaps than we came. We are leaving fully reminded to look past the tears of this life and to fix our eyes in a way that, that drives our behavior, our thoughts, our prayers, our attitudes to fix our eyes on the sure, perfect fulfillment of all that we hope for because your son, past tense, has won the victory. God, grow us by your grace. Move us, grow us so that we live like Christians and think like Christians. Cause us not to forget the joy that is ours now and in the age to come.
Help us to remember the joy of your countenance, which because of Christ will never be turned away from us again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you once more. Would you stand with me? Let's respond to our God in song.